If you take the people who've run for president on the Republican ticket since Reagan and put them all on the stage with this group, they might break down in tears. This government that we have cannot be trusted to take care of our every need because it will take care of us in ways that deprive us of our lives. And so we've got to make a turn here, and we've got to do it pretty soon. Well, that statement reminded me of Lincoln because it's so different. (laughs) (laughs) Nice save. There's uh, something fundamental afoot. Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. The last radio hour of the week on the Hugh Hewitt Show is the Hillsdale Dialogue, often with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, sometimes with one of his colleagues, sometimes about the great works of Western civilization. It seems, though, that 2016, as we've moved in the morning, is morphing more and more into a look back at the week that was in this political year of extraordinary uncertainty and brash new developments. Dr. Arn, a great good morning to you. Two weeks in a row, you've been up earlier than a college president has any right to see the dawn. Yeah, you know, and I haven't been doing a very good job either these two weeks. <laughs> no, well, I, actually, people like last week quite a lot, and uh, and so I'm I'm stunned by that. You've become kind of a a Bruce Springsteen-like figure out on the college campus circuit. You show up in Portland, and hundreds and thousands of people show up. You go to Seattle, and that happens. What do you make of all this? Uh, well. Uh, first of all, it's nice to be around when politics is like this. Everybody's disgusted with it. So, <laughs> so I don't know. It, uh, you know, I, I think that this election is showing a great springing up of fear of what we've got today and longing for what we used to have. And the college understands something about what we used to have, so people flock to it. Hillsdale.edu is where you go to get all of the free online courses taught by Dr. Arn and his colleagues on the Constitution, on the progressives, on economics, on Jane Austen, I believe, most recently. HughForHillsdale.com is where you go to get all of our Hillsdale dialogues dating back four years on beginning with Homer and up to the present. I want to begin with something that happened earlier this week that has nothing to do with the presidential campaign, because I need you to help my audience out. I objected to the president's request for $1.8 billion for the Zika virus. The Congress has not given it to him. So he went and he got money from the Ebola fund. And and the liberals are complaining that the Congress is being unresponsive and that Zika is a crisis. I stipulate that Zika may well be a crisis. It's causing microencephaly among children in South America. It appears to have dire neurological impacts on some adults. It's a real problem. Nevertheless, the liberals who are critical of me keep sending me to a White House fact sheet that has absolutely no specificity other than Department of Health and Human Services, $1.48 billion, uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development, $3.35 million, the United States Department of, of State, $41 million, and a few paragraphs after each of these things, it adds up to $1.8 billion. Is that what Congress is intended to do? Just simply write checks to the president upon the declaration of an emergency, Larry Arn? That's, uh, that's what they do today. I mean... If you just think about these continuing resolutions that they pass now, uh, there's no budget control in them. It's a point that Trump makes in his campaign a lot. Where do these numbers come from, and how would anybody know? And since the numbers are contrived by the executive branch that gets the money, can't you be afraid that it's padded, that there's a lot of perks in there for people, stuff like that? You know, think of Obama's shovel-ready projects when he came in, right? He's going to solve the 2008 financial crisis. (laughs) 
excuse me, by spending a lot, a lot of money through the government. But you know what what happened, right? It, the answer is we just paid a lot of people who work for the government. So of course you got to be suspicious about that. Now I wanted to ask you because you actually run an operation. You got fifteen hundred students up there. How many faculty do you have at Hillsdale College? Uh, one hundred and fifty. Okay, so you got one hundred and fifty. That's ten to one ratio. And how many buildings you got up there? Uh, I don't know. I think we might have. 30 or 40. 30 or 40 billion. So you have like gas bills and air conditioning bills, and you've got to buy furniture and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Oh, sure. So when someone comes to you and says, Dr. Arn, I need a million dollars for the theater department, do you just say, okay? Yeah. Yeah. I say, what for? (laughs) You know, I'll tell you a funny story about that. You know, it's amazing. We we put on plays. We have a very good drama department. and, And, you know, when I first came, the, the, I wandered around. I was alone, and I wandered around, and I went into the the building where the drama is. It's a very nice building, and I was, you know, I wanted to make sure the plays are not dirty, which modern plays tend to be. And so I'm looking around, and I see that they're unpacking some crates, and they got fancy lights in them. And then a man, a really great man, who's just retired, came by, and I said, "What are these?" And he said, "Well, these are our new lighting." And I said, "I'll bet that's expensive." And he said, "It is." And I said, "Huh." He said, what are you thinking? I said, I'm thinking you need things from me. (laughs) And he said, "Uh, yeah, we do. And I said, how are the plays? (laughs) (laughs) And there you have Article 1 and Article 2, right there. (laughs) There you go. That's called oversight of the appropriation process, isn't it? Now, what is so hard? Where where did we go wrong? I mean, it's a serious question. People are mad at me because I'm opposing the president's $1.8 billion, not because it isn't an emergency, but because I don't think you write blank checks to presidents who have a record of not doing anything with the money you've given them. That's right. And uh, and also, details, right? That That's what legislation, you know... Obama loves, and this is this is modern liberalism in general. Obama loves to pull the panic button. Out in California years ago, you may remember that uh, you know, you knew him. Mike Ruse was oh, a sure. very important legislator. Sure. And so he, I, there was the Southern California Association of, of Philanthropy Roundtable, and I ended up debating this Mr. Ruse because Mr. Ruse gave a speech to this to these philanthropists about how we, there was a shooting in a restaurant, and we rallied and used the news of that to ram through a bill. And he just gave this really great speech about how gun control came out of this crisis. And so he wasn't ready for me. And so I read out loud, my speech was, I read out loud three passages from the Federalist about how the spirit of the legislature is deliberation. <laughs> oh my God. Not, the reason we have two bodies in the legislature is they're supposed to think. And then takes both of them to think. And then that makes sure that we take enough time to know. And I read all that out to him, and I bet you money he'd never heard it before. <laughs> like I was reading from the moon. And I said, tell me, I said, Mr. Bruce, do you make better decisions when you hurry or when you deliberate? <laughs> oh <laughs> you know? my. There we are, see. So that's the thing. This $1.8 billion will go to and through the executive branch, and it's just a big whacking bill. You know, the other day, somebody came. You tell me you asked me about a million dollars. 
somebody came and wanted a million five to do something that if it works is really great and i said a million five and they said yeah and i said okay tell me about that <laughs> and you know it emerged that he wasn't ready to tell me about oh that oh that's and not I a said, good come not on a good, back when you're ready not a good strategy <laughs> now let me tell you about the problem of billionaires there's a story from this week i talked to a number of my guests about it tiny spaceships will be blasted by laser beams from earth to explore our nearest star system 25 trillion miles away this is a plan cooked up by yuri milner a russian internet billionaire stephen hawking and Mark Zuckerberg, and they're going to put $100 million into creating a whole bunch of these tiny little spacecrafts that are about a meter long. they got light sails on them, and they move at 130 million miles per hour, which is a fifth of the speed of light, and we're going to bombard the Alpha Centauri, the nearest star system, with these things. And I, in my mind, I'm, th- you know, I'm thinking about 20 years from now, some planet in the Alpha Centauri is going to get bombarded by these little space machines, and they're going to be mad at us. Isn't that just a giant waste of money, in your view? Well, what I like about this is it's their money. <laughs> okay, it is. It's admittedly, it's not illegal. No. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, everybody, we all do this. You, I've heard you do it, right? You catch the adventure of science, right? And so, uh, the government, when the government wasted money in the past, it wasted money. Uh, you know, science and building bridges, right? Now we waste money paying bureaucrats. Well, I, I, you're absolutely right. But what could you do with $100 million? I gave a group of philanthropists a speech this week in which I suggested seven things they could do with their money. And one of them was build a building at Hillsdale because you could be guaranteed that the students who walked out of it would be prepared to lead. What could you do with $100 million? Well, uh, I can actually answer that question specifically. <laughs> I could... Uh, I could uh, uh, make the college safer. I could build my graduate school in Washington, D.C. I could finish my chapel. You know, I mean, there's a list. Right? There's a list. There are people who know what to do with $100 million. We don't have to send little tiny spaceships, a fleet of things, of space litter. In. It just makes me crazy, waste does. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry R. And the Hillsdale Dialogue continues. We've got to talk about, of course, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Paul Ryan, and more. Stay with us. The book of Exodus is one of the central narratives of the Bible. It recounts the moment when God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt and gives them the Ten Commandments to guide their moral and religious freedom. But how well do you actually know the story? In Hillsdale College's new, free, online course, The Exodus Story, you'll learn the spiritual significance of the Old Testament's most epic book. In The Exodus Story, Hillsdale College professor of English, Justin Jackson, picks up the biblical narrative where his course on Genesis ended. Join Dr. Jackson in learning about the nature of God's mercy, human freedom, and the relationship between the divine and man. Discover the beauty of God reclaiming the Israelites through his mercy and love in The Exodus Story. To enroll today and secure your spot in this completely free online course, visit hillsdale.edu slash newcourse. That's N-E-W-C-O-U-R-S-E. hillsdale.edu slash newcourse.
22 minutes after the hour, America, an eventful week in politics means that the Hillsdale Dialogue is once again devoted, as it has been for many months now, to campaign 2016. Dr. Larry Arn is the president of Hillsdale College. He is very good friends with the Speaker of the House of Representatives, a constitutional office, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan joined me a week ago on Monday to say he was not running for president. And Dr. Arn earlier this week on Wednesday, he said this, cut number two. It is really amazing how our politics has followed so closely overseas. I was asked about it everywhere I went. I'm also aware that while I was overseas, uh, there was more speculation that someone other than the current candidates will emerge as our party's nominee. I want to put this to rest once and for all. As you know, I have stayed out of this race and I have remained neutral as chairman of the Republican convention My job is to ensure that there is integrity in the process, that the rules are followed by the rule book. That means it is not my job to tell delegates what they should do. But I've got a message to relay today. We have too much work to do in the House to allow this speculation to swirl or to have my motivations questioned. So let me be clear. I do not want nor will I accept the nomination for our party. So let me speak directly to the delegates on this. If no candidate has a majority on the first ballot, I believe that you should only choose from a person who has actually participated in the primary. Count me out. I simply believe that if you want to be the nominee for our party, to be the president, you should actually run for it. I chose not to do this. Therefore, I should not be considered, period, end of story. I just think it would be wrong to go any other way. So let me say again, I am not going to be our party's nominee. He was not finished, though, Dr. Larry Arney went on to say this, cut number three. But I'll also be clear about something else. Not running does not mean I'm going to disappear. Which brings to mind this Wonderful excerpt from Dumb and Dumber, cut number four. So you're telling me there's a chance. (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) What do you think, Larry Hart? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln never ran for president. And uh, (laughs) and, uh, uh, first of all, isn't he great? I mean, he's he's such a fine man. You know, I know lots of people have disagreements with him about this and that. I have one or two myself. But he's such a fine guy. And, and those statements are high-minded and meant very much, in my opinion. But second, they make people want him more. <laughs> yes, they do. Yes, they do. Now, it, it, now I was asked by Larry O'Donnell on, um, on the last word on MSNBC on Wednesday night to comment about that. And here is that exchange. Hugh, I have thought the Paul Ryan uh, tries to grab the nomination story has never made sense to me because it seems very clear that if Paul Ryan were to do that, he would be doing it in a world of Republican disaster where he would know it would be impossible for him to win the White House through that route. Well, that's the 20th time, according to The Washington Post, that Paul Ryan has said he is not running for president. The 19th time was on my radio show last Monday. But I point out, Lawrence, nobody knows what's going to happen in Cleveland. Godzilla could come out of Lake Erie and step on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We really, the Browns could have a good draft. Anything could happen this summer in Cleveland. We can't rule anything out. 
If, in fact, we get gear grinding, if we get deadlock, and you've got Donald Trump, who is the front runner, and that was a good radio ad that you played earlier, a very powerful ad. If he's at 50 and Ted Cruz is at 875 and John Kasich is hanging around at 400, 500, and on your third or your fourth ballot, you've got the wheels are locked up and smoke's coming out of everybody's ears, you start looking around for who can step into that. And if not uh, immediately pass, uh, former Secretary of State Clinton, at least have a credible, credible campaign in the fall. Everybody thinks Speaker Ryan. He's okay, Larry Arndt, 30, minute, 30 seconds to the break. You agree with my assessment? It's, uh, I think that's uh, you at your best, because, by the way, that is exactly the process by which he became Speaker of the House. Yep. Yep. And so, and so people ought not, he can be very, very sincere, and he can also change his mind. Those are not inconsistent. Thanks. Yeah, exactly right. And see, the circumstances have to... If, if we're facing a disaster, that's why that's why he became Speaker. Because we were facing a disaster. More with Dr. Larry R. And the Hillsdale Dialogue continues. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue. Everything Hillsdale is available for free at hillsdale.edu. If you're not receiving monthly the Speech Digest in Primus, uh, you're denying yourself a great read that will arrive free of charge if you just sign up for it at hillsdale.edu. All of the free online courses are there to make you smart in this election year, including Constitution 101, which has got more than a million people have watched that, probably two million by now. And it's in wonderful bite-sized chunks that you can stop and start at any time that you want from Hillsdale's extraordinary faculty. And all of the dialogues I've been doing for four years with Dr. Arn, beginning with Homer and moving through Aeschylus and getting up into, into Machiavelli all the way through to the modernity that we cover in great depth today. All of that available at HughForHillsdale.com. HughForHillsdale.com. Dr. Arn, it was not a quiet week on the political front. Donald Trump made sure that it wasn't. After he was roundly defeated in Colorado, he took to the hustings in New York, Ted Cruz having won 37 out of 37 delegates. And this is what Donald Trump said to a rally, cut number 22. This is a dirty trick, and I'll tell you what, the RNC, the Republican National Committee, they should be ashamed of themselves for allowing this kind of crap to happen. I can tell you that. They should be ashamed of themselves. Because it has nothing to do with democracy. They took the votes away from the people in Colorado. You got to show the Republican Party that they can't get away with this stuff any longer. Then followed Ted Cruz on with Glenn Beck, cut numbers 23 and 24. Number 23 first. This is real simple. Donald is a very sore loser. Uh, he doesn't handle losing well, and he throws a fit. Um, he is crying and screaming and yelling, and he insults people, and he curses at people, and he attacks people when he loses. He behaves like a child, as Anderson Cooper pointed out, like a five-year-old. Five year and... The simple reality is in the last three weeks, there have been 11 elections in four states across the country, and we have beaten Donald Trump in all 11 elections. Donald is panicking. He is scared. You know, Donald loves to call people a loser. Mm -hmm. Donald wakes up at night in cold sweats <laughs> that people will call him losing Donald. That is his ultimate fear and every time the voters reject him and they've now done so in 11 elections starting in utah 69 percent of the voters we won a landslide there got every one of the, the delegates then in north dakota very different state 
They had their convention. They elected their delegates of the declared delegates. We won 18. Donald won one. Then Wisconsin. The media said Wisconsin was a perfect state for Donald Trump. They said Cruz could not win in Wisconsin. It's an upper Midwest state, industrial state, not a very large evangelical population. It was a blue-collar, working-class state. The day before the election, Glenn, Donald boldly predicted a, quote, big victory in Wisconsin. So, Dr. Arn, uh, I would say we are both living in Switzerland. We observe the combatants that Senator Cruz has gotten under Mr. Trump's skin. Well, they're very different kinds of people. Uh, uh, Ted Cruz is very cool under fire. Have you noticed that? Very. All the way through. Have you ever seen him lose his temper? And what he comes back with, what we just heard there, that was an argument, right? Bunch of facts in it. And and uh, he's like that. And and uh, he, he is, you know, he's a remarkable man. Trump is a remarkable man, too. But they're different, very different kinds of remarkable men. And uh, th- think of think of what's latent in that dispute. First of all, the Republican Party is a political party. It's a private organization. It's actually decentralized in its government. It can do what it wants to to nominate a president. It's had many ways of doing it. It has many ways of doing it in this election. And the check on that being an abuse is that come November, people are going to vote. And so they're, you know, they're doing what they can to make Colorado is doing what it can to make itself influential at the convention. And first or second on the list is try to win in November. So to cry out it's not democracy is not quite the argument you'd want to make right now. Ted Cruz went on to explain what happened in Colorado specifically, cut number 24. And the next day he got shellacked. We won another landslide, 48% of the vote, beat him by 13 points. And then Colorado. You know, the temper tantrum that Donald is throwing over, over Colorado is really ridiculous because they didn't just have one election. They had eight elections in Colorado. They had one in each of the seven congressional districts. And then they had a statewide convention. I was at the convention. 6,000 people at the convention were packed in there and voted statewide. In the eight elections, Donald Trump lost all eight. They elected 34 delegates. We won all 34. Now, part of the reason Donald lost is he didn't show up. I went and spoke at the convention. I went and asked the voters for their votes. Donald was supposed to go, but he canceled because he realized he was going to lose, that he didn't have the support in Colorado, so he ran away scared. And now he's just making up nonsense. Do you know how many people voted in the state of Colorado? Hmm. 65,000 people voted. He's screaming about stealing elections. 65,000 people voted. They just didn't vote for Donald. They voted for our campaign instead, and Donald can't handle it. He's scared. And, and so his response is just to whine and cry and attack and complain. Now, now uh, again, uh, pretty devastating counterattack. We can say that as neutrals, we can observe efficacy. And uh, when someone scores, it's like calling a basketball game. That was a three-pointer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, um, the party, the Republicans... Cruz's case is Republicans favor him. When Republicans vote in caucuses and in purely Republican primaries, he wins. That's his case. Uh, I would add something that he should very much be thinking about, and I have 
told him this myself. Uh, and not being for him, not endorsing anybody, right? But the most interesting thing about Donald Trump, I mean, there are many interesting things about Donald Trump and good things, but the most interesting thing about him is the people voting for him. And there's a lot of them, and a lot of them are coming into the Republican Party from outside, and everybody who wants to be president of the United States on the Republican ticket should be thinking about them and how they get them to vote for them in November. Because I think it's true that, uh, first of all, it's an, I know this is true, it's an enormous indicator that Republican participation in the primaries is way up and Democrats are down. And that's a tremendous indicator for November. So the big task for the Republicans is to unite that vote. And if they can do that, I think they're going to win in November. And they, they will do it likely through an incredible mess, but they could win. They just need to put all those votes together somehow. Now, on, Everybody should be thinking about that. On Tuesday night, Anderson Cooper interviewed Donald Trump and his family. He asked a question of Ivanka Trump, the very successful uh, executive in the Trump organization. Just gave birth to her third child, overseeing the opening on time and under budget, actually early, of the new Trump Tower, the renovated old post office in Washington, D.C. Here's what Ivanka said to Anderson Cooper on Tuesday night, cut number 14. So, Ivanka, what have you said to him about being presidential? Well, I think it, one of the interesting things about this process is it's very easy to have an opinion on things, but when you're not in the arena, it's, um, you know, it's, it's a different ballgame. So I've definitely said things of that kind to him, but I also then watch these debates and... It's, it's a hard thing to observe because I see them, it's like a cage match. You know, they're jumping on him and they're hitting him from the left, hitting him from the right. Everyone's attacking him because he's been the front runner for so long. It's, uh, it's, it's, he's the man to take down. So while I, uh, I do sometimes tell him to, to withhold some of that sort of fire, I also understand it and I think it's instinct and I think it also speaks to his passion. And I think that's ultimately what we need. I mean, you have to have tremendous stamina to get through this process. You have to have a fire and a passion. I don't think you can be particularly laid back and, and make it through, uh, through, through this whole experience from, from what I've observed, especially when you're competing against many very qualified people who are quite upset by the fact that you've, uh, you've long passed them. So, uh, Dr. Larry Aaron of Hillsdale College, what does it say about a candidate that he produces a child so eloquent and so obviously competent? Yeah. Uh, by the way, isn't she great? Yes. You, I've heard you say that before, and that, that, that was splendid, what she just said. And, you know, about Trump, I, 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 I watch for this carefully. Where are the people for Trump in their droves coming out to tell what a, what a bad man he is? There aren't any. I, and then his family. I mean, it is true, his marriages, there are many, but it's also true that these children are awesome. And, and, uh, and, you know, I think Donald Trump is a good and honest man, I, I, and I have concluded that, whereas when all this started, I thought he was just a showboat. And, and I think he's probably a very effective executive and a good father. That is true. Now, what about policy? Here's what he said himself on Tuesday night to Anderson Cooper, cut number 11. 
your campaign has been saying, I think it was last week they started saying you were going to start putting out some very specific but policy pronouncements. on tax. You're going to be making some policy things. speeches in particular. I'm going to start doing that, yes. When, when is that I did. I did one at APEC about right. concerning Israel, and it was met with raves. You even said it was good. But I did one on, I'm going to be doing probably 10 over the next two months. A lot Do you know what the, when the, the next one's going to be and what the topic is going to be? I would say over the be? next week. Do you know what the topic will be? Yeah. Uh, we're looking at different topics. We're looking at unity as an example. One topic I want to discuss, it might not be policy, but I want to talk about unity in the Republican Party because I think it's very important. But we're going to be talking about the military. We're going to be talking about NATO. You really think you know, you when I bring... talked about NATO last week, Wolf Blitzer asked me the question, what about NATO? Now, I've been building buildings all my life and doing deals all my life. But I know about NATO, and I said it's obsolete, and we're spending too much, and everyone's ripping us off. You have 28 countries, they're Dr. ripping Arne, us off. Dr. Arne, is that sufficient? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know. Let's hear the speeches, and they better come soon. Uh, you know, what, what's happened in the last month, let's say, about that time, is that this has turned into a dogfight, right? And what it was was a Trump procession before that. And one of the reasons it's turned into a dogfight is the energy and drive and adaptability of Ted Cruz. And so, in one way, this is just like a football game, right? What's the fourth quarter going to be like? And who's going to have the energy and drive and imagination to figure this out and break the key? And Trump is trying to adapt, too, and he has been, you know, brilliant. So I think we've got... In the, in the front, two really serious people running for president. We are in the third quarter. It's my only quarrel. We'll come back and talk about this. Through the end of the California primary on June 7th, we're in the third quarter. Fourth quarter is from June 8th through the conclusion of the Republican convention. More with Dr. Larry Arn when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. On the new episode of the Larry Arn Show, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn sits down with theology professor Jordan Wales and computer science professor John Seifert for a roundtable discussion. What are, are there dangers? What are they? Because it's useful means, yes, it can't be stopped because it's the, the, the companies, the next level agents doing the technological advances. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's good. A hundred years ago, we switched, switched over from artisan craftsmen making our things to assembly lines. And that was more efficient, it was more productive, but it changed how humans were in the world instead of having the furniture in your house made by the craftsman down the road and having that person have that job. We now have a different relationship and a different arrangement. The the kinds of dangers that we want to look at with artificial intelligence are, are similar to other sorts of industrial automation type dangers. Listen to this exclusive roundtable right now, only available on The Larry Arn Show. Find it on the Hillsdale College Podcast Network at podcast.hillsdale.edu or wherever you get your audio and subscribe to receive new episodes delivered right to your device. That's podcast.hillsdale.edu. Welcome back, American. Thank you for listening to the second week of the new Hugh Hewitt Show. And thank you, Adam and Generalissimo. Thank you, Jake and Daniel and Ben and everyone up and down the line who makes the Hugh Hewitt Show happen. And of course, to Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College for this Hillsdale Dialogue, which you hear each week at this time. We review either the things that are very old or the things that are very recent. This week, we're talking about the things that are very recent. I should add that your friend and mine, Mark Levin launched a television network. And on that television network, it's a closed circuit network. He invited Senator Marco Rubio, who came on Tuesday. And on Tuesday, Senator Rubio, without using the E-word endorsement, effectively endorsed Ted Cruz. What do you make of that? 
And, of course, he did it in Mark's studio. Mark is a full-throated backer of Ted Cruz. Is that more evidence of the consolidation of conservatism around Cruz, Dr. Arndt? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's some wide consolidation of Republican leadership and conservative leadership, for sure, around Cruz. And that's a big thing for Rubio, because those guys have sparked it. Cruz and Rubio have sparked at each other a lot. And, you know, kudos to Mark Levin for drawing him out. And it is important. It's like it's, it's got some relationship to the Scott Walker endorsement in Wisconsin, which you predicted would be important and looks like it was very important. So do you see the possibility of a Cruz-Rubio ticket? And if such a ticket were to emerge out of the embers of Cleveland, and it will not be without conflict there, but just go with me for a moment. Is that a potentially realigning ticket in the way that Trump is potentially a realigning ticket? Oh, yeah. Uh, Rubio has enormous popular appeal of an immediate kind that the others, at least Cruz, may not have as much of, right? I mean, Rubio was everybody's favorite. Everybody thought Rubio is the guy who can win the general election. How many people who are policy and polling experts told me that all summer long last summer? And, you know, just testing them against, you know, so that'd be a very strong ticket. And, and Cruz is relentless, right? Cruz is a, he's extremely talented man. He's very smart. And, Lord, does he not play hard and well. And he keeps his temper. So I think he's emerged, you know, because of that. I don't think it's an accident. But I think Rubio remains a very attractive candidate. And, yeah, that would be great. Meanwhile, Heidi Cruz, candidate Ted Cruz's spouse, had this to say to Megyn Kelly this week, cut number eight. Recently, uh, Donald Trump sent out an unkind retweet about you comparing your appearance unfavorably to that of his his wife, Melania Trump, who is a retired model. How did that retweet first come to your attention? Well, one great thing about me, Megan, is I don't tweet. So um, <laughs> I had an ability to completely ignore it. And, uh, um, you know, I think we have a pattern of behavior here that when Donald Trump is, is falling behind, you know, it's interesting. The timing of that was right before Ted's sweep, sweeping victory in Utah. Good yeah, part. but that's a dodge. I'm yeah. wondering whether, like, who told you about it and, and how it made you feel? You and Carly, my dear friend Carly and myself, have, have been um, the object of some of, of um, Donald's criticisms. But I will tell you, it, uh, I know why we're running this race, and it's not for Donald Trump. It is for the voters of this country. And when you have a husband who's standing by you that is so strong and so unflappable, it really gives me a lot of strength. And so I, I really have to honestly say, it didn't impact me um, in the least. I have one job on this campaign, and that is to get out and tell the voters who Ted Cruz is. And when telling the truth about who your husband is, is your job, it's pretty easy and it's been great for our marriage. So because I don't tweet, because um, I know what my job is on the campaign, and because I know that every time the Trump campaign starts to lose, they throw in distractions of personal destruction. Sharp that response, Dr. Arn. You know, this campaign, in my opinion, is great. I've been saying it. Cruz versus Trump and Kasich still in. But Ivanka versus Heidi. I know. <laughs> that, be, the, the, that would be colossal. The undercard is very, very good. And, <laughs> and, so? and so I am not convinced 
that Cleveland will be a disaster. It will be confrontational. It will be uh, sparky, to use a term you used earlier. There may be Black Lives Matter on one side of the fence and disappointed candidate supporters on another side of the fence. But I'm not at all clear that that isn't superior to the, you know, Yasgers Farm Woodstock replay of Bernie Sanders and the dullest candidate in the history of the republic, Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, you know, I, I don't, I do not despair. I, I think that it's that uh, turning around the country is such a big job, and it's bound to be messy and controversial. And we got two guys fighting for that right now, and and Kasich too would be an is an excellent candidate, and so that's good. And you go into the convention like that, and then. The party, in the in in its heart and imagination and mind, has got to find a way to put all of this support that it's getting together by November. And if it does that, it's going to win, I think. And if it does win, things will change for the better significantly. That's right. You know, these are all people. Do you, do you not believe? I mean, just listen to the debates. Do you not believe that Ted Cruz or Donald Trump are likely to do what they say? Absolutely the key question. The answer is yes. And the Hillsdale Dialogue will return next week. Thank you, Dr. Larry Arn. Hillsdale.edu. See you next week, America, on The Hugh Hewitt Show.